Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to Episode 7 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries both supernatural and natural, anything that's strange, odd, or makes you wonder, the claims and counterclaims from the perspectives of both faith and reason. In this episode, we're, we're going for the strictly natural sort of mystery, a political mystery, perhaps. Uh, we're talking about Watergate. Uh, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today, of course, is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So first, I want to remind folks, please uh, remember to like, comment uh, to subs- uh, on, the, on this episode, subscribe to the feed, the podcast feed, or to the YouTube channel that you're listening to. Um, if you're listening on YouTube, click the get notifications bell. Uh, and then please share this, this episode, this, this show with other people. Uh, if you like it, chances are there, you know people who will like it too, and help us to grow the audience for uh, Mysterious World so that uh, we can be a, a large community contributing and understanding and, and, and ha- just having fun looking at these mysteries. Uh, we really want to do that together. And speaking of the community, be sure and stick around for at the end of the episode, we're going to have mysterious feedback from members of the community who listen. And also we're going to have mysterious headlines at the end to let you know what's happening in the mysterious world of news. <laughs> and the, the, the world of news is often mysterious. So, yeah. uh, Jimmy, we're talking about Watergate. What is Watergate? Well, in the most basic sense, Watergate is a building complex in Washington, D.C. It's partly uh, it's it's partly a hotel. It's partly a kind of residential hotel where people who work in government would live and it also has um, offices that people could rent. And so it's a kind of a both place where people live and an office building. And a lot of the people in the 1970s who lived there actually, I mean, there were there were people working in government and actually a lot of them were Republicans. But in the office part of the Watergate complex, the Democratic National Committee had its headquarters. And that's what led to Watergate becoming a scandal. So that's what right. it's known for today. It was a scandal uh, involving Richard Nixon and his administration where various people connected with his administration attempted to bug the Democratic National Headquarters there in 1972. And uh, it led to a big scandal that went on for years and ultimately led to President Nixon's resignation. So he became the first and only U.S. president to resign from office. And I was a little boy when all that was happening. I remember watching the Watergate hearings uh, in front of uh, the Senate on television, just like everybody else back then. And Watergate, I mean, really has become a part of our culture, our society. I mean, a lot of today's politicians or kind of maybe a little before, like the, the, the previous generation even, were politicians who cut their teeth during the Watergate era. Um, yeah. like, like Hillary Clinton was on the Watergate commission. You know, she worked for the Watergate commission, that sort of stuff. Um, but also just the term gate for a, for a scandal. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's become the par- It's become the paradigmatic scandal uh, in American political history. And so any new scandal that comes along tends to get tagged with gate. 
Um, so there's been all kinds of different so-called gate scandals down through the years. Yeah. I'm I'm curious to see how long that will continue in our culture. Um, if after the last person who remembers Watergate dies off, whether anyone will bother using that anymore, but we'll see. It's usually the press who likes to to use the term. So uh, yeah, it's a certain generation. So I, I guess tea, Teapot Dome was had passed its sell by date, so <laughs> yes. they needed something new. Right, right, right. The next, yeah, the Dome uh, scandals. So, so we, so this is a historical event. What's the mystery, Jimmy? What's the mystery with Watergate? Well, um, there are several. Um, in terms of the basic claims that are made about Watergate, um, one of them, and and as we'll see, this one is pretty much well agreed on, is that Nixon obstructed justice during the Watergate probe after the break-in. Um, it's also argued, it's claimed by various people, that Nixon either ordered the break-in at Democratic National Headquarters, or he had advanced knowledge of it and didn't object to it. Um, this is also held up. One of the big claims about this is this is an, this was like a triumph of American journalism where the press, and in particular, um, two reporters working for the Washington Post, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, where the press, and especially Woodward and Bernstein, took down an American president. And it's it's kind of set in some ways the uh, the tone for subsequent interaction between the press and the White House, because now every journalist would love to be the new Woodward and Bernstein who makes their reputation by taking down a president. It's uh, almost a cliche now. Uh, who do you think you are? Woodward and Bernstein? I mean, you hear yeah. that in movies and TV shows and that sort of thing. So, um, OK, so what's the. Uh, the counterclaim, what would uh, the people who say this isn't true, what would they say? Well, um, there are a variety of counterclaims. Pretty much everybody is going to agree that Nixon obstructed justice or at least, I mean, conducted a cover up after the after the burglary. Um, there will be different views about whether that was criminal or not. Uh, um, but most people would say some laws were violated. Nixon maintained that was not the case, that he didn't violate laws. He just made mistakes. Um, other people would say, and some people would say Nixon did not have prior knowledge um, of the break-in and, and didn't order it. Um, I've read one book where the author maintains and seen lectures uh, by an author who maintains that Nixon was actually set up by his attorney, John Dean, hmm. um, that Dean was the one who was responsible for the Watergate break-in. And he was really, a, this is the claim, that he was the, a plant for the Kennedy camp to try to prepare the ground for Ted Kennedy to become president by damaging uh, Richard Nixon. And so that's one of the claims that's out there. But there are a lot of different conflicting claims. Interesting. So, so what do we know? What 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 happened at uh, at the Watergate complex, uh, and then after that? Okay. Um, well, what we know is, and I'm going to try to tell this as briefly as I can because the actual story has a lot of twists and turns um, and a lot of different figures that uh, played roles in it. But basically, the White House and the Committee to Reelect the President, which was Nixon's campaign organization in 1972. Um, they were running a kind of espionage and dirty tricks squad uh, that was trying to find out things about the Democrats 
and also trying to sabotage the Democrats' efforts in various ways. And that's nothing new. Political campaigns always do that on both sides of the aisle. Right. Um, they're always trying to find out what's the other side up to and, um, and how can we stop them. Um, but one particular group that was working uh, in conjunction with, uh, with the Nixon people was a group known as the Plumbers. And they were called that because their job was to fix leaks. To leaks to the press. Mm -hmm. um, so when information leaked out to the press, the plumbers were supposed to find out, well, who leaked it and how can we stop information from leaking out that we don't want given to the press? Um, this is, again, something that's totally normal in politics. People are always trying to either create or stop leaks to the press for one reason or another. And the plumbers, in this case, involved some ex-FBI and CIA people, including uh, G. Gordon Liddy, and uh, Howard Hunt and various others, in, and also some kind of low-level operatives who were from Cuba. Um, Howard Hunt was a CIA guy. He was a spy, uh, but he was an ex-CIA guy and mystery novel writer um, who had, or spy novel writer, who had been involved with the Bay of Pigs invasion back during the Kennedy administration. And so he had all these contacts in the Cuban exile community in Florida. And it was actually um, uh, a number of them who were part of the break-in crew. And so we know that on, uh, on May 28th in 72, they did an initial break-in to the Democratic National Committee uh, headquarters in the Watergate building to plant listening devices. And they didn't get caught. They got away with it. But the listening devices either didn't work or weren't giving them the information they wanted. And so they went back in on June 17th to fix the devices and also to take photographs of documents that they hoped to find. And that's when they got caught. A security guard found them and uh, walked in on them and and they and they got arrested. And they were these really bizarrely dressed burglars. You have all these Cuban guys wearing business suits and surgical gloves. So they're like immaculately dressed burglars. <laughs> um, and they've and they've got all this equipment with them uh, for bugging and, and cameras and stuff. And then eventually they were able uh, the the authorities were able to determine that other people besides the break-in guys were involved. That led to Liddy and Hunt. It led to Chuck Colson, who was uh, part of the Nixon administration. It led to uh, the former Attorney General, John Mitchell, who was the head of the committee to reelect. And so the scandal just grew. And initially, Nixon's line was, I didn't know anything about this, and this has nothing to do with the White House. But eventually, as the investigation proceeded, it became clear, oh, yeah, no, it does. Um, and so that was kind of a burgeoning scandal. But it didn't stop Nixon from winning in November. Uh, when November 7th came, he won re-election by a landslide. And, and you know, it was it was there's absolutely no doubt. I mean, he he it was a runaway Nixon success in terms of, uh, of, of election day. But that didn't end the scandal. So Nixon gets sworn in again, and there's a Senate investigation that gets opened into what happened at Watergate. There are there's an independent prosecutor who gets appointed and is looking into it. 
And um, during part of that, Nixon ended up firing several of his closest aides, including his chief of staff, John Haldeman, uh, as a way to try to uh, distance himself from the activities and say, it was all my underlings. I didn't have any knowledge of this. And um, and one of the people who he he fired was his own lawyer, John Dean. And John Dean was afraid the whole thing was going to get blamed on him. And he talked in talking with investigators, he told them that he had previously discussed the cover up with Nixon. And that so that raised questions about what did Nixon know and when did he know it? A famous quotation from Senator Howard Baker of Tennessee during the Watergate hearings. What did Nixon know? What did the president know and when did he know it? And then another Nixon aide named Alexander Butterfield revealed that Nixon had a secret taping system in the Oval Office and had been recording all these different conversations that had been happening. And so that focused the um, investigators' attention on the taping systems because the logical way to follow up Dean's claims and everybody else's is to get the tapes and see what was said. And so this led to a tug of war over the tapes. Now, while that tug of war is happening, Nixon's vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigns from office because he got he was a corrupt Maryland politician before he was vice president and his corruption came to the surface. So while Nixon is being um, is being investigated, uh, so was his vice president, uh, Spiro Agnew. So Agnew resigns and gets replaced by Gerald Ford, um, who then became uh, the only he would eventually become the only president of the United States who had never been elected mm-hmm. as president of the United States, either to the vice presidency or to the presidency, because he was appointed as vice president and then naturally succeeded Nixon as president. What was Ford before? He was a he was a senator. OK. Um, and, and by and all he, accounts, the, the the most honest guy in the administration at that point. Yeah, um, <laughs> certainly one of. Yeah. Um, so that's what's happening in, kind of in the background while the Watergate investigation is going on. Nixon tries various uh, ex- expediencies, various strategies to keep the tapes from coming out. At one point, he released edited transcripts of them, but and the transcripts turned were widely criticized. Uh, not only did they not satisfy people, but they had lots of edits where um something would be said like material deleted because unrelated to presidential action and then when we finally got the tapes it's like no that was very relevant <laughs> um also there was lots of cussing and and racial slurs and ethnic slurs and things like that which reflected very badly on Nixon and his associates um but eventually uh as the tug of war is going on over the over the tapes um, impeachment proceedings start against Nixon in the House of Representatives. Uh, they charge him with obstructing justice and refusing to honor subpoenas for the tapes and so forth. Um, and ultimately, the tapes issue goes before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, with one abstention, uh, which was Justice Rehnquist, who had been appointed Chief Justice by Nixon, um, he recused himself. But the other eight... Supreme Court justices unanimously said you must hand over the tapes. 
And so Nixon did. And uh, in early August of 1974, a tape came out that's now known as the smoking gun tape. It was of a conversation that was held on June 23rd, just a few days after the original break-in. And on it, Nixon is shown organizing the cover-up. So this provided substance to the charge that Nixon was obstructing justice. And uh, at that point, his support in Congress in both houses on the Republican side was melting away. He concluded that uh, the House would impeach him and that he didn't, which means he would be then tried in the Senate. And he didn't have enough support in the Senate to survive the trial. And so rather than um, rather than go through the disgrace of having his presidency ripped away from him, he chose to resign. Uh, he issued a one sentence statement saying, I resign effectively tomorrow. Uh, he released that and gave a speech on August 8th. And then he resigned on August 9th. And Gerald Ford became president. And a month later, on September 8th, Ford pardoned Nixon, which was a for any crimes he may have committed. At the time, public sentiment in many parts of the country was very anti-Nixon. Um, I mean, he was he, by this point he'd become a very polarizing figure. The press really had it out for him, and uh, as did the Democrats and. The attitude, the atmosphere in the country was poisonous, and loads of people were wanting to see him tried civilly after, or in the civil yeah. courts after he was president, and uh, and so people, a lot of them were really mad at Ford for pardoning him. But Ford's argument was, we've been going through this agony for two years, and if this keeps going, I'm not going to be able to effectively. Uh, guide the country where it needs to go if Watergate continues to gum up the process of public affairs indefinitely for the good of the country. We need to just move past this and uh, and let this settle down. Nixon's out of office. Whatever he did is in the past and history will judge it. But we need to move forward at this point. We can't continue to have the government paralyzed by this issue. Which and there was a lot going on in the in the country and in the world. Right at that yeah. time, you know, uh, yeah. the Middle East was at war. Uh, we had the oil crisis. There was a lot of, you know, it's still at the Soviets to deal with. There was a lot the, the going Cold on. The war, the residual Vietnam issues, all kinds yes. of stuff. Yeah. And so uh, today, Ford's judgment, even though it was unpopular at the time, is is widely thought to have been a wise decision. Okay. So that's so that's what happened. And that's a, thank you for that summary, because even though I'm old enough to have lived during part of that, I wasn't old enough to be aware. And frankly, we didn't learn uh, much about it in school because probably my teachers were tired of talking about it because <laughs> it, was, <laughs> it was contemporary politics for them uh, in some ways, you know, 10, 15 years after those events. Um, so from a faith perspective, is, is there much we can say here about Watergate, the Watergate scandal? Well, obviously, it involved a lot of immoral behavior, which frankly is par for the course in politics. Um, one of the things that a lot of people said, and I think this is an accurate assessment, is um, Nixon was just the first to get caught right. in a big way. Um, other presidents, and we know, I mean, other presidents have done similar things. We know for a fact now, for example, LBJ had a secret taping system in the Oval Office. Right. Uh, we know that John Kennedy was up to all kinds of hijinks. <laughs> 
You go back as far as Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln was doing flagrantly illegal things during the course of the Civil War. Um, so, uh, so you know, scandal in politics is nothing new. This was, but it 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 even though it's par for the course, it it does involve immoral behavior. One thing that's interesting from a faith perspective is after the Watergate scandal, a lot of the figures who were involved uh, really had a reawakening of their own faith um, and became uh, very committed uh, to their faiths. Uh, G. Gordon Liddy returned to his Catholic faith. Uh, Chuck Colson had a, uh, a, 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 a powerful conversion to evangelicalism. Yeah, after uh, he, he served in prison, didn't he? He served. He, in- oh, these guys all went to prison. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but he had a, he had a reawakening in prison spiritually. He wrote a book called Born Again. That was his first autobiography. He founded a ministry called Prison Fellowship that continues to minister to prisoners uh, all across the country. Uh, Jeb Stuart Magruder, uh, another Nixon aide who uh, worked for the Attorney General John Mitchell, uh, he later became a Presbyterian minister. And uh, uh, Bob Haldeman, Nixon's chief of staff, who got fired, um, had a conversion to Christian science. And in keeping with Christian science belief, he refused medical treatment even when he got cancer. So he was, uh, and, and, and that's what killed him. And so, um, he was very sincere about his beliefs. Interesting. So that, that interesting how the intersection of faith with this political scandal, um, uh, bore out, um, some, some really, you know, in, in, especially like in the case of, uh, uh, Colson and Magruder, especially in the public sense, how they yeah. bore out such fruit. Um, I mean, I remember Chuck Colson's dead now, but, uh, you know, in his career as an evangelical uh, speaker, author, uh, he was, I mean, he was big. He was a, he was, he he was was a, a big, big guy in, even, in yeah. the evangelical world. And, you know, there's always a question when someone uh, has a prison conversion, how much of this is for getting parole? But Colson stuck with it. I yeah. mean, he, 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 he founded a major ministry and devoted the rest of his life to this. Yep. Um, and, you know, when you have people like, Haldeman going to their death because of their religious beliefs. I mean, that testifies to how sincere they are. Yep. Yep. So uh, from a a perspective of uh, applying our reason to this mystery, um, what do we what do we say about this? Okay, so there are a number of different aspects here and a number of mysteries that remain. Um, One thing that is a myth, though, is that Woodward and Bernstein took down the president. They did not. Um, they reported and they did a lot of very creative and interesting reporting on the subject. And that kind of helped keep it in the public eye. But actually, if you watch and it's an excellent movie, if you watch All the President's Men, which is the 1970s movie with uh, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman playing Woodward and Bernstein. Um, it's an excellent movie. It's excellent filmmaking. And it has exactly the same plot problem as Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) <laughs> you watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, and at the end of it, you go, wow, that was great. But how would it have played out any differently if Indiana Jones had not been involved? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, exactly the same things would have happened. The Nazis would have got the arcs. Their face would have melted. That would have been it. Um, well, the same thing happens when you watch All the President's Men. At the end of it, you go, wow, that was a great movie. But wait a minute. Wasn't it the FBI and the Senate that did everything here? 
Right. Woodward and Bernstein didn't do anything but narrate from the sidelines. They didn't. They didn't break up. Break any of the stories. They didn't find anything. It was. It wasn't them finding out who did no, they, what. Got they evidence. were getting right. They were getting stuff from government sources, learning things the government already knew. Right. And so, um, so they did play a role in keeping this alive in the public eye, and that did contribute to Nixon's downfall. But it it would be inaccurate to say that Woodward and Bernstein took down a president. They they didn't. It was it was Congress that took down the president ultimately. Right. Um, but uh, ap- uh, a and one mystery that we have solved since uh, since their time is who was Deep Throat. Um, Woodward had a source in the executive branch who he could consult on deep background, meaning he could get information from this guy, but he could never publicly talk about him. And when their book, All the President's Men, came out that the movie was based on, the public learned about this source. Um, And all we knew was he was someone highly placed in the executive branch, but we didn't know who. And it became a, a kind of parlor game for years trying to figure out who Deep Throat would have been. There were all kinds of claims, all kinds of arguments about who Deep Throat must or must not have been. Before we knew, I had read myself read books on the subject because Watergate is one of my interests. And I had I read a book by John Dean on who are the candidates for Deep Throat and which one does he think it is. Um, ultimately, we found out because he self-identified. It, the Deep Throat was Mark Felt. Uh, Mark Felt was the um, he was basically the number two man at the FBI. And that's why he had information about what was happening in the Watergate investigation, because all these FBI agents were going out and interviewing people. They were funneling that information up through the chain of command in the FBI. Mark Felt is the number two. He was seeing all of that information and then going over and confirming things that Woodward was hearing. So that's the dynamic. And Deep Throat, at the, when people didn't know who he was, was viewed as this patriotic hero that was, you know, secretly disclosing this information to keep the investigation in the public eye. Well, there's another side to it now that we know who, that he was Mark Felt. Because Mark Felt, when J. Edgar Hoover died, had wanted to become the FBI chief and was passed over for promotion. And L. Patrick Gray was made the new FBI director instead of Mark Felt. And so what this also looks like from that perspective is not as much an act of heroic patriotism, although there may have been an element of that, but also disgruntled employee sabotaging his boss. <laughs> well, maybe if he had like, a, if his name was like M. Patrick Felt or something like that, he could have, because <laughs> J. Edgar Hoover, L. Patrick, uh, you know. That, yeah, that's... you need that leading initial. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's a rule. <laughs> um, so that's one mystery about Watergate that's been solved. There are a few other mysteries that haven't been. One of them is, and this one we kind of have an idea about, but one of them is, why did they do this break-in in the Watergate building to begin with? What were they trying to achieve? Um, the Cubans were told, and this was a transparent lie, but the Cubans were told that they wanted to find evidence that Cuba had been funding democratic campaigns. Hmm. 
well, no, that's not what they were after. Right. That was just a story to get the Cubans to go along. Um, another claim is that they were trying to tie the Democrats to a prostitution ring, and they thought they were going to be getting appointments made with prostitutes over these phones, and they could embarrass the Democrats with that. Gordon Liddy, who hated, hated, hated John Dean, later claimed that they were after evidence that Dean's wife was involved in this prostitution ring, but nobody <laughs> believes that. That's just Liddy hating on Dean. Um <laughs> Another claim is that they were after general campaign intelligence about what the Democrats were doing. But Nixon himself on the Watergate tapes dismisses that idea and says, why would anybody want to do that? The Democratic National Headquarters is not where you have the sensitive campaign intel. That's going to be in the candidates headquarters, which is different than the National Party headquarters. Um, so that leads to a, a last theory about why they were breaking in, which goes back to another mysterious figure, the billionaire Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes had been supporting both parties, as was common for rich people back then. They would support both parties. So no matter who got elected, they would have access. And so he had do been donating large sums to both campaigns. Well, previously, um, in the 1960 election, a, a, a kind of shady loan that Hughes had made to uh, Nixon became a campaign issue and hurt Nixon. And allegedly, he'd made a subsequent shady loan while Nixon was president. And Nixon, But he was also known to be supporting the Democrats. And so there was a question, and, and the Democratic chief, Larry O'Brien, had worked with Hughes. And so there was a question, does Hughes, does Larry O'Brien know about Hughes's money that he's been funneling to us? And could that come back to embarrass us? Mm -hmm. And so one of the claims is they wanted to bug Larry O'Brien's phone to find out, did he know about the Hughes money? So that's another possibility. Okay. Um, the big one, of course, is what did Nixon know? And this one is... People argue, still argue both ways. Historians don't have a unanimous conclusion on this. Um, people who are very closely connected with all of this take different positions. James Neal, the prosecutor of, of the Watergate 7, said he didn't think Nixon knew because of how surprised Nixon was. And indeed, on the tapes, Nixon does not display prior knowledge. Um, he, he does, he is shown orchestrating a cover up. But he doesn't say things that seem, at least in most people's judgment, he doesn't say things that indicated he knew about this ahead of time. Now, some people would say, well, he knew he was being taped, so he wouldn't say such incriminating things. But he says all kinds of awful stuff on these tapes. He yeah. didn't. He clearly didn't think anybody was ever going to hear this. Right. These tapes were um, for him to listen to, nobody else. For him, right? For him to listen to and glean info for his memoirs later on. Right. These are these are not for anybody else, and he wouldn't have had all the ethnic slurs and and crude language and stuff if he thought these were going to be publicly heard. Also, on a tape dated June thirtieth, nineteen seventy one. We hear Nixon ordering the break, a break in of the Brookings Institute. Hmm. So he had no problem discussing and ordering break ins on these tapes, but we don't have him ordering the break in of the Watergate. So 
it's it, it it's plausible that this was something his camp his juniors came up with and may have deliberately not told him as a way of giving him plausible deniability. On the other hand, some people argue that he did know, and one of the people who claimed this after the fact was Jeb Stuart Magruder. Um, Magruder though claimed he didn't personally discuss it with Nixon, but he overheard part of a phone call where uh, Nixon was talking to his campaign manager and former Attorney General John Mitchell, and he heard Nixon say something that Magruder interpreted to be an order for the break-in. But this is based on Magruder's memories after the fact, based on part of a conversation over the phone that he overheard, and so it's this isn't a hundred percent either. Yeah. Um. So so this one does kind of remain a mystery. A final mystery is what happened in uh a, in one of the Watergate tapes. It was a conversation from June twentieth, nineteen seventy two, just three days after the break in, and this tape has a mysterious eighteen and a half minute gap where there was a deliberate erasure or series of erasures of what happened on that tape. It's it's very famous. Originally, it was blamed on Nixon's secretary, uh, Rosemary Wood, um, but it was demonstrated she physically could not have done this. Uh, there's a famous photo of her attempting to reenact how the erasure happened, and she's like trying to press on the dictaphone phone pedal with one foot while reaching way across to get her phone that allegedly rang at the same moment. And it's just it physically could not have happened. Mm. What it appears happened is someone, probably Nixon, tried to erase part of this tape and because there any and bungled it because there are like five starts and stops in the erasure. And Nixon was famously inept with technological devices. Um, so he attempted to erase something it looked like. But um Interestingly, we have Haldeman's notes of this same meeting. Uh, Haldeman was a note taker and would write down all of the action items that Nixon gave him. And his notes indicate that there was some discussion of the break-in. So probably what happened there was some kind of early cover-up planning, but probably not an admission of... Um, of, of prior knowledge because Haldeman, who later came clean about all this and wrote about it, um, Haldeman said that he, he would, he didn't remember that and he, and he would have if he, if that had happened. Okay. Okay. So, um, so that's the, the, the three mysteries that remain and two that don't, uh, the Woodward mm -hmm. Bernstein and Deep Throat don't, uh, those are pretty much been solved, but there are still three mysteries and we may never know. We may never find out what was in the 18 and a half minute gap, what Nixon yeah. knew and that sort of thing. There are hopes and they've subsequently tried to use new technologies to reconstruct what was what's in the 18 minute gap, because hmm. there may still be traces on the magnetic tape of the original conversation. But thus far, we don't have the technology to recover it. Interesting. So what's the bottom line uh, here about the Watergate mystery? The bottom line is it's an interesting political scandal. It is certainly not the first. It's certainly not the last. And some mysteries remain about Watergate. Okay. So, uh, like I said, we'll have a number of uh, good resources in our show notes, uh, some YouTube yeah. uh, videos, 
and including uh, including a really good frontline series that they did on like the 10th anniversary or 20th anniversary of the series uh, I've of, had, the, of the scandal. I've had it recommended to me that the Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California is a uh, is a good place to visit. It's an interesting uh-huh. visit. So um, I'll put that on there if, you, if you're ever in that area of Yorba Linda, which is supposed to be a nice area. Um, mm-hmm. My friend who uh, used to be the White House chief of IT in the Bush administration recommended it because he's from Yorba Linda. Just, oh. just I'm name dropping there just because it's it's funny that it's a White House thing. It's also a funny name, Yorba Linda. <laughs> I like saying it. <laughs> yeah. But it's also where Nixon lived in retirement. Yes. Yes. Or, was, was he from Yorba Linda? I yeah, think that's that's what I'm trying to remember. He may have been. <laughs> he was. He obviously was from California. Um, We're doing some live out. vamping here, folks. We're uh, live. Yeah, live research. He was born in Yorba Linda. <laughs> okay, that's right. All right. And his his retirement was uh, elsewhere here on the California coast. Okay. Great. So uh, now, I wanna, we, we, uh, as we've wrapped up the Watergate uh, scandal, uh, we uh, and mystery, we want to move on to some mysterious feedback. Um, and this one, uh, the, we have two pieces of feedback um, having to do with our Bigfoot episode. Um, and uh, they both come from YouTube, YouTube comments. And uh, the first one is from Becky. And Becky says that uh, some of Jimmy Aiken's classification and supposing, quote unquote, is accurate. But about he's, Bigfoot. About Bigfoot. But he's just talking from his intellect, his head. He's never had an experience. I think an experience of Bigfoot, I think she's saying. And it's right. not hard to have an experience, but he's probably not going to be willing to go with people who have those experiences. So she says, I just had a Sasquatch shake the camper as no human can do, like a 7.0 earthquake. And others camping close by did not experience an earthquake. And there's a, there was a greasy handprint on an open window next to where I was sleeping. The shape and stretch of the digits was not human. And then three separate cars of unrelated people saw one run across the road. Cars stopped and people reported. Uh, in a store close by. So that's Becky's comment. Uh, do you have wow. a response there, Jimmy, the, that one? I would be very scared if something <laughs> like that happened to me, but I would also be very intrigued. Uh, but the thing that strikes me about that is, and I'm, 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 I'm not being skeptical, Becky, because I would, I, I, like you, Jimmy, I want there to be, there be yeah. Sasquatch. I, I, I would love there to be Bigfoots. Yes. Um, I, I think that would be awesome. I just I'm skeptical that there are, but I would love it if there were. The the thing is, is like I could say that sort of a thing could also happen if a bear shook your camper to try to get in at whatever food you had in it. I mean, it's just I just have to point out that that's a plausible mm. a, a explanation, barring any uh-huh. other evidence. So um, and, and again, we've talked about in the show that uh, sometimes emaciated or sickly bears, mangy bears can look extra thin. And and don't look and, bearish, and they they can stand on their hind legs. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but again, I'm just pointing out the, a plausible explanation. So, and then the second comment was from uh, Chateau Mojo on YouTube, uh, who says it's uh it's all pareidolia and laughter until you see one. Then it's yeah. not pareidolia so fun. is pareidolia is seeing patterns where there isn't a pattern. Like if you're looking into a dense forest and you think you see a shape. Right. It's like seeing the man in the moon. Uh, it's yeah. A, it's Which I, I never saw, but. Okay. My son said the same thing last night because we have a full moon as we record this. And <laughs> I said, mm-hmm. I see it. Um, but uh, 
So she's kind of, uh, or I'm not he or she, Chateau Mojo, is, is saying, you know, that we're we're kind of laughing it off, but then until you know you see one, you wouldn't. Uh, then it's not so funny. It, it is very hard to accept. It goes against our grain, our shared reality. And then they say, "I have found footprints. I have had rocks thrown at me out in the yonder." I, I'm I supposing like rocks thrown from mysterious person. Yeah. And and that's one of the claims is that big bigfoots throw rocks and gravel at people to scare them off. That would work for me. Uh, they say, uh, seriously, I'm a retired fifth grade teacher. In the past, I asked students to say if they ever saw a Bigfoot. Um, and, she, and then they parenthetically, I have a system. Everyone gets a small blank piece of paper. Everyone has to write something like I never saw one or whatever. They have to put their name on it, but a guaranteed anonymity. I think in order to help help them to uh, speak up in order to, to uh, be honest, to be honest, despite uh, being afraid of being ridiculed. Um, and then I pick them up and look at the results and we discuss. Usually about 15 to 20 percent of a class had seen a Bigfoot. Uh, mind you, this is on the edge of the Sierra Nevadas. Mostly it was kids whose parents had taken them hunting, uh, hiding in a, in a hunting blind. How many had gravel thrown at them while hiking? About a third. We saw one on a field trip to Sonora, California. No kidding. Just standing by the road. Only so many kids had their noses in their phones. Only a few saw it. But it wasn't just me, at least. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's. That I mean, that's that's excellent. I mean, I, I but I keep coming back to if, if people have their phones with them, they have a camera. Like, w like take photos, people. <laughs> take photos <laughs> and video. Like, why is if if it, it, that that's my thing? If it's if it's a very common experience, why don't we have a decent photo, a game camera photo, uh, any kind of photo other than the grainy, distant ones that we have? And that's that's my big response to that sort of thing but again I, i'm not laughing i would love for it to be true um but there are plausible explanations that also keep this a mystery yeah and i i want to thank both becky and chateau mojo for writing in um i appreciate their experiences and i would i would love uh for this to be true and i hope we get uh i think it would be great for us to get you know, definitive evidence in the future. That would be awesome. Yes. Let us solve this mystery. That's, that was what I want to, I want, uh, so that we can prove it. I would love to prove it. All right. So that was our feedback. Now let's move on to our mysterious headlines. Jimmy, what are our mysterious headlines this week? So in Bigfoot related news, uh, Jane Goodall, the famous primatologist who has spent years and years out in the wild in Africa, observing chimp behavior, uh, recently made comments about Bigfoot. Uh, I'm a romantic, Goodall replied when asked if she thought Bigfoot existed. I would like Bigfoot to exist. I've met people who swear they've seen Bigfoot. I think the interesting thing is every single continent there is has an equivalent of Bigfoot or Sasquatch. There's the Yeti, the Yowie in Australia, the Chinese Wildmen, and on and on and on. I've heard stories from people who you have to believe them. So there's something. I don't know what it is, she right. says. Right. People are experiencing and, something. Yeah. And, and we'll have a link to uh, a link to her comments in the uh, show notes so you can uh, see that for yourself. Also in Mysterious Headlines, Germany, uh, the German government has announced it has no plans to deal with an alien landing. That is um, not good. 
And, well, <laughs> they, they argue that the odds, uh, apparently one official said that the odds that they will be the ones to experience the landing rather than some other country are fairly low in their <laughs> estimation. Um, but that doesn't work if it's like every major city all at once. Right. Like the, in Independence, Independence Day. Day. Yes, exactly. Um, so there's a link to that as well. And finally, on Twitter, astronaut Leland Melvin uh, recently said that he was asked, have you seen a UFO? Uh, on the ground, and he said he hadn't seen one on the ground or in distant space, but he once saw quote something organic slash alien like close quote uh, floating outside the space shuttle payload bay, describing it as a trend as translucent, curved, and organic looking. He radioed NASA about it and was told it was ice that had broken off from the shuttle's freon hoses. And so if you want to read that Twitter exchange, uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Excellent. Thank you, Jimmy. So just a reminder, folks, once again, to uh, like, comment, subscribe, uh, hit the notification button, share the show uh, with others so that we can uh, spread the, the spread the wealth, spread the good news about <laughs> the mysterious world. Um, and so that's it from us. Uh, send us your feedback. We want to hear from you. Um, if you want to send an audio feedback and a, a voice recording of some sort, uh, attach it to an email. We'd love that. Um, tell us what you thought about Watergate or any of our other topics we've discussed. Or if you have a, a suggestion for a topic, which we've received some suggestions, and we've, we're adding them to our list uh, of, of future show topics. You can send those as well. So you can go to sqpn.com or to the SQPN uh, Facebook page. That's SQPN for StarQuest Production Network. I say that kind of fast, so I want to make sure I get that out right. Uh, sqpn.com. Uh, leave us some feedback on, on today's show. Send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Uh, we'll put links to our social media and websites, as well as to all the resources and links we discussed in the show, on the website at sqpn.com. And until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Don Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World. <laughs>